1: to the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast.
2: They're a bunch of guys who ain't never played the game, and they never got the girls in high school, and they just want to <laughs> get in the game.
1: With your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. See, the thing is, you guys look at me, you see the backwards hat, the uh, gray socks, the funky outfit, and you say, "Now this guy's a chump." Am I right? No. A uh, uh, like. geek. Only on the V Podcast Network.
3: What's up and welcome in another edition of the Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Von Tobel. The postseason, well underway. Man, this has been off to an awesome start. I have loved almost every single game that has been out there. Some of these series have been absolutely fantastic. Denver and Portland has been a crap ton of fun. You have this ridiculous 0-2 hole for the Los Angeles Clippers. The Bucks. the gap between those two teams has been a lot bigger than we expected. So, a lot to go over. We have a couple of, actually, we've got three Game 3s to discuss after what happened on Thursday night. Look ahead to some of these series, big picture stuff with all of these guys, and what we're looking at for these series as well, because there are some trends developing that have been troublesome for some teams, some unsustainable numbers, and all of that kind of stuff. But I wanted to get to a little bit of news. Not insanely impactful. Actually, I thought it was going to be impactful, given what we saw early in the season, but if you look at some of the numbers, uh, the Brooklyn Nets are probably going to get away with this just fine. Jeff Green has strained his plantar fascia. He's going to be reevaluated in ten days, sidelining him for the remainder of the Nets series with the Celtics. So I, I came into this thinking that that might be a little bit, a little bit of a blow here for the Brooklyn Nets, especially if you get into that series of Milwaukee. Not so much the series of Boston. This Boston series is all but done. Yes, we're only two games in. There's clearly a gap though between these two teams. The second half in Game One wasn't pretty. Game Two was absolutely ugly for both of these squads. So. For both of these squads, it was for ugly for the Boston Celtics. You know, you understand what I'm saying. But regardless, you're going to get away with this just fine. And I I thought the loss would potentially, if if the absence was going to extend to the Milwaukee series, that was going to be a loss. Turns out, statistically, it's not. You still got Blake Griffin, and he has turned out to be the better option when the Bucks go to those small ball lineups or any of those small ball lineups that the Nets have. Remember when this team acquired Jeff Green? I actually thought that, you know, I I actually came on this podcast and I said, hey, I I really hope they don't force Blake Griffin into the small ball five role that Green has been so amazing at. Offensively, they had a really high ceiling. Defensively, they were much better. And so far, now that this has played out over the course of 72 games, and yes, Griffin hasn't been on the team for 72 games, Griffin's actually been the better option as a small ball center up to this point. So how about this? Blake Griffin at center this year, Nets have a plus 13.2 net rating, scoring 126.2 points every 100 possessions. They're only giving up 113. uh, Half-court possessions, right? 98.5 per 100 plays. Not the greatest. And they allow opponents to grab 28.4% of their their misses, right? So it's a small ball lineup. They struggle to defend in the half-court for the most part. Can't really keep teams off the glass. So those last two figures aren't really great. But the numbers for Jeff Green in terms of his numbers at center have really, really come down here. Jeff Green at center this year, plus 4.5 in terms of the net rating overall. An offensive rating, very good, 124.7, still worse than the offensive rating with Griffin at center. And the defensive rating, how about the defensive rating being 7.2 points per 100 possessions worse with Jeff Green on the floor at center. 120.2, they allow 101.9 points every 100 plays in half-court situations. And they give up an offensive rebounding rate of 3% 29.9%. 29.9%. So, it looks like in at the beginning of the year, like I said, I thought that Jeff Green was going to be the better option. But as long as you have Blake Griffin to deal with some of these small ball lineups that the Milwaukee Bucks throw out there, and it's mainly when Brooke Lopez goes to the bench, right? When Lopez goes to the bench, Portis will come in, play a lot of that small ball five role, and they have a very, very good numbers with Bobby Portis at the five, namely on the offensive end. And I think that that is going to be, What is pretty key here. Jeff Green, it sounds like he'll be back for the series against Milwaukee. And again, yes, we're penciling in both of these teams. No series is over yet, but the Bucs have a commanding 3-0 lead over the Miami Heat. We'll get to that game in that series coming up in a couple of minutes. And of course, the Brooklyn Nets seem like they're handling business against Boston. So it's not a massive deal, but it is something worth keeping track of. If for some reason, Blake Griffin starts to struggle in his small ball five role, if they're going to roll that out there to match up with Bobby Portis at the five when Brooke Lopez goes to the bench. But... It's, it's a note worth you know it's worth noting at this point right now that Jeff Green has an injury especially with a team like this right that has had its injury issues in the past with the three key guys specifically and their track record of handling injuries so we'll see but again Jeff Green strained plantar fascia going to be reevaluated in 10 days all right let's get that out of here enough for the headlines not really much recording this late on Thursday so let's talk about the games that we saw go down this evening This is the
1: Hardwood Handicappers Podcast. Interact with the show on Twitter at me, JVT, at Roach underscore 97, and at VSIN
0: Live. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip.
2: Hi, checking in for...
0: Or the perfect table.
2: Hey, where are you? Coming!
0: And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card...
2: Hey, this looks amazing!
3: Los Angeles Lakers and the Phoenix Suns. I want to start here because, man, like anecdotally, this just sucks. One hundred nine, ninety-five. Lakers is a six and a half point favorite. Get the win. Game goes under the total. Get the cover two. Overwhelming Phoenix with their size and their defense. Second half was pretty dominant for the most part. And now the Lakers have a 2-1 series lead with one more game in L.A. And it just sucks from an anecdotal standpoint because Chris Paul can't catch a break, man. Chris Paul's a really good player. He's a fun player. Obviously, I know very well about the injury history of Chris Paul in the postseason, being a Clippers fan. But, like, you just kind of feel for the guy. He's a really good player, and he's gotten so many teams probably I wouldn't even want to say that the Suns shouldn't be here, but he was such a massive role in getting this team to the 2 seed, only to draw LeBron James and the Los Angeles Lakers in the first round. It just really sucks, anecdotally. But when you look at what the Lakers have been doing, right, and... and I feel like at times I was a little too simplistic in my analysis. Maybe it would be a little bit, actually, maybe I was too specific, right? Maybe get a little bit more broad with it, or put it that way. Because, you know, one of the things that I've been harping on in the series was, look, if the Lakers win at the rim, they're going to win this series. If they win in transition, they're going to win this series. Those are two areas in which the Phoenix Suns have really struggled. And then you look at what the Lakers did yesterday and what they've been able to do, and it's not even just the rim. It's the painted area of the floor. Right, that's what's important for this one. If the Lakers can outscore the Phoenix Suns and consistently score within four feet of the basket and in the painted area, they're going to have a really good shot at winning this series. And sure enough, last night, 58-38 in terms of the scoring differential in the paint. They win by 14 points despite shooting 24% from beyond the arc. The Lakers' defense, though, man. Like, I, when I say I was a little maybe too simplistic about it or whatever it was, when I didn't even, there was a lot of times when I evaluated the series, and I feel like I made it mostly about, hey, Los Angeles offense taking apart the Phoenix Suns defense. And I had numbers and and reasons as to why, but I almost to an extent either discounted or pretty much just expected a, a solid Lakers defensive performance. What they've done, though, in this series has been downright dominant in terms of what they've been able to do to limit the Phoenix Suns offense. And Chris Paul's injury has a lot to do with that, right? But through three games, the Suns averaging just 1.05 points per possession. 36.8% from the mid-range area of the floor, despite taking an overwhelming majority of their shots from that range. 36.8% of their attempts. Think about that. 36.8% of their attempts have come from mid-range. Not surprising, a team in the top of the league in terms of mid-range frequency. So taking 36.8% of their attempts and shooting 36.8%, not very good. Not very good for the Phoenix Suns. Not really generating offense much else anywhere, right? Don't really get within four feet of the basket. The three-point shooting has been a little off as well. DeAndre Ayton seems to be at times one of the only players who can consistently find his offense, but the rest of the pieces around him not been performing. Like I said, Chris Paul, man, Chris Paul's injury plays a big part of this. He's only averaging 6.7 points per game, 38.3% from the floor, 6.3 assists, four rebounds per game. The minutes, of course, have been limited. He's been banged up, and it looked like in the second half, He regressed immensely because he got hurt yet again. I shouldn't even say got hurt again. Aggravated the shoulder injury. Only 27 minutes. It's just a nightmare. And with him on the floor yesterday, he posts the worst plus minus of any of the Phoenix Suns. When Chris Paul was out there, they got outscored by 20 points. It just wasn't very good, man. And this series seems all but done at this point right now. Because if Chris Paul is not going to be healthy to give the Phoenix Suns some sort of edge, you know, and like there was a perfect example of it. There's at one point in this game where Paul's on the floor. He draws Andre Drummond, one of the the, the matchup that Chris Paul loves. Right, how many times we've we seen Chris Paul on a center in the mid range area of the floor work his magic, mid range jumper sinks it, and he goes to throw up a mid range jumper and it just it doesn't even reach the rim. It just clanks off, run iron rebound for the Lakers out in transition. It it just sucks, man. The Suns are not going to do much if they don't have Chris Paul at full strength. And you can see the defensive game plan too. It almost seems like DeAndre Ayton's like, "All right, you know what? Let DeAndre Ayton score. DeAndre Ayton, that's fine. We will go one on one with Drummond. We'll go one on one with Marcus Gasol. As long as we know Chris Paul's not going to be doing anything offensively. As long as Devin Booker doesn't kill us, I think we'll be fine overall." And sure enough, Booker last night six of nineteen from the floor, one of four from three point range, only nineteen points. He had a minus seven. Jay Crowder shooting has not been there. He was one of seven from the floor, or excuse me, from beyond the arcs. Put it that way, two and nine from the floor. It just seems like a very, very steep hill to climb without Chris Paul at full health. So the adjusted series price at this point right now, Lakers are over an $8 favorite, minus $8.35. Phoenix, you're getting 5-1. to one. If you think the Suns can come back, you need more than 5-1. to one. Just put it that way. You know, a lot of these series prices, a lot of the time, especially with the underdogs, you're really not getting the true value that you should. You need more than 5-1. to one. You need in the range of like 9 I think 9 or 10 to 1 if you're going to realistically play something like this for the Phoenix Suns. The gap between these two teams in the last two games, the way this offense has been operating without Chris Paul, there is a much, much bigger gap between these two at this point right now. not saying full strength. I'm saying at this point right now, with the injury to Chris Paul, to feel comfortable looking at the odds of 5 to 1, 16.7% implied probability, you need a little bit more than that, man. Because... If Chris Paul's not going to be out there, I think this is just about maybe a 10% chance, a little bit less. And if you're talking about 9% in terms of implied probability, you're giving yourself about a 10% or excuse me, a 10 to one price tag on that. And obviously that's not where five to one is. So it sucks, man. And it looks like the Lakers, I mean, for lack of a better term, right? A little lucky. They fall into that playing situation, but then they get Chris Paul and the Phoenix Suns. Chris Paul and the Suns take game one, but then he gets injured and here you are, the path in front of you is very much there. So we'll see. I, but I think this one, I hate doing this very early in series, right? A lot of people are writing off the Denver Nuggets after game one. A lot of people are writing off the Los Angeles Clippers, which they may be right. It's 2 nothing now. But it, you play a best of seven for a reason. I, I keep saying this because there's a lot of hyper like, hyperbolic analysis after a lot of these games. But the injury makes it pretty tough at this point to have a lot of faith for them
1: this is the hardwood handicappers podcast only on the vcin podcast network this is it we've got an amex platinum pro on our hands ladies and gentlemen we haven't seen anyone relax like this before in the centurion lounge is he connecting to complimentary wi-fi oh my look at that he is and you will not believe where he's going next
3: All right, now let's go to another series that we saw play out on Thursday night. Denver and Portland, 120-115, to 115, Nuggets three-and-a-half point underdog at the outright win. Game goes over the total the 227. I mentioned at the top, troubling trends developing for some of these teams. Well, there's one developing for Portland, all right? And the key word for me on a numbers game this week has been sustainability, sustainability. What's sustainable and what's not? Well, the Nuggets last night, one of the things that I thought was going to be sustainable on a night-to-night basis was the ability for the Denver Nuggets to exploit Portland inside. And last night didn't really go as well, right? Nuggets were 13-27 to within four feet of the basket, just 48.1% after shooting well over 74% in the first two games. But the three-point shooting came around big time for the Denver Nuggets. 54.1% non-garbage time minutes, 20 of 37 against the Portland Trailblazers, and pretty much the whole game was non-garbage time minutes. Half-court rating for the Denver Nuggets offensively 108.7%. And in transition, they just killed Portland, average 1.8 points per play, and didn't get out that often. So it wasn't like they were getting up and down the floor. But anytime they did get out, really good performance and showing from Denver in transition offensively. So what's the troubling trend here? Well, Portland's got no answer for Denver when Yusuf Nurkic is on the bench. And Nurkic, of course, fouling out in that game yesterday and in game two. So that hasn't helped at all. But the Blazers were outscored 52 to 36 with Nurkic off the floor in this game. Those 52 Denver points came on just 36 offensive possessions. So we're talking about a rate of 144 offensively. 144 with Nurkic off the floor. Enos Cantor has not been good. Nurkic sat, How about this, then? Nurkic sat down. Remember, 5.03 left to go in the first quarter. Blazers are up by six. Enos Cantor hits the floor in Nurkic's place. Denver scores 19 points on their final 10 possessions, 1.9 points per possession. Like, it's just, it's kind of a nightmare with Enos Cantor out there. And that's it, right. That's not, we talk about sustainability. That's not ending anytime soon in terms of the Portland Trail Blazers figuring, uh, figuring that out. You saw some minutes from Rondé Hollis Jefferson late in the game to kind of, they were you could kind of tell Stouts, was like, all right, well, Cantor's not going to do us any favors at this point right now. Let's try to go a little small. Let's try to counteract this with something outside of Enos Cantor. And it's just they have really no other options there. And it has been really troublesome. Nurkic played 32 minutes last night, but I mentioned he fouls out. And look, it doesn't help that this team had a really poor shooting night, right? 14 of 43 from beyond the yard, 32.6%. Not really much within four feet of the basket, but a better showing than usual. They actually, And this was, I thought, part of a brilliant game plan from Michael Malone and the Denver Nuggets. Right, because they made the adjustment of Aaron Gordon on Damian Lillard. And Gordon did another solid job on Damian Lillard. But the other sneaky subtle part about what they were doing last night and we always say run guys off the three point line they were running damian lillard off the three point line so well last night and like lillard for the most part did not have a poor game right he had 37 points he was 15 of 31 from the floor the problem is they held him to only five three point makes on 16 attempts because they just kept running them off he was taking really tough shots from beyond the arc right logo lillard type shots and a lot of you know he's really good at taking those shots but when a good chunk of your shots are coming on those, because you can't really get any space when you get close to the perimeter because of guys like Aaron Gordon, like that's going to be a problem. And I thought it was brilliant because they were they were telling Portland, essentially, go ahead. Lillard can score, but he's going to score on twos, buckets, and rim runs. And that's what he was doing. So Lillard had a really solid game, but it wasn't from beyond the arc. And then you get to the ancillary pieces, CJ McCollum, 8 of 20 from the floor, 3 of 10 from three-point range. Robert Covington missed two of his, uh, to hit both of his uh, three-point shots. Norman Powell, 2 of 6 from three-point range. Carmelo Anthony, statistically 5 of 12, 4 of 8 from three-point range, did very well, but all of that came in a spurt in the third, fourth quarter in which all of a sudden he went on, I think he went like an 8-0 run in the fourth quarter, him and Austin Rivers duking it out down the stretch of this game. But I thought, look, the performance overall from the Denver Nuggets, sustainable? Probably not, right? Keeping with our theme of the postseason early on. Probably not. I shouldn't even say probably not. It's not sustainable, right? You're not going to shoot that clip from beyond the arc again. Now, I will say that the Portland Trailblazers played into their own demise there because they were losing a lot of guys on three-point range shots, right? Like, there were a lot of open shots for the Denver Nuggets. They were losing guys in the corner. Their defense, again, still has a problem, especially with Nurkic off the floor. But again, an offensive rating of 125 for Denver. So, like, Portland has themselves to blame in a lot of this, too. But at the same time, like Denver, and this is what I think going forward too, right, is as we keep with this theme of what can you do on a game-to-game basis, the three-point shooting is not sustainable for Denver. But I also think it's not sustainable that this team has that poor shooting night within four feet of the basket again, right, given the weaknesses that this Portland team has defensively. So while there might be some regression, or there will be some regression, for Denver in terms of their shooting, and there's going to be some positive regression for Portland. There's a realistic universe, right, in which the three-point shooting gets knocked down to about 36%, 37%, but that that rim shooting for Denver gets right back up there to about 69%, 70%. Now, having said that, when you look forward, and we're talking about the next game in the series for Game 4 with these two back here in the Pacific Northwest, it seems like a much better spot for the Portland Trailblazers, right? Is Yusuf Nurkic going to foul out for a third consecutive game? More likely than not. You would think that even though Nurkic, like you're going to think that Nurkic, and it depends on his fitness level. But Nurkic in terms of how many minutes you're going to see from him, depending on what the foul situation is like, I'd expect to see Nurkic pushing for like 40 minutes here. They don't really have any other option outside of actually nothing. They really have no other option whatsoever. So this is going to be pretty fascinating. These Game 3 lines are up. Denver on Saturday, a a 3.5-point underdog with a total of 228.5. Initial thought here is to take Portland. see what the market does, though. And this is the only opener up at DraftKings. DraftKings is the first one up with this line. We'll see what's going to happen. But slight adjustment there. Is this one open? 3.5. The market pushed it to 4. Steamed a little high, and sure enough, it's there. So adjusted series price, too, by the way, as we look at this. Because now the Denver Nuggets have taken home court back. From the Portland Trailblazers. How about this swing, huh? Denver now a $2 favorite, baby. Over the Portland Trailblazers. So, look, I feel pretty good about the pre-series bet, right? Denver Nuggets plus 112. But there's still a long way to go, man. And the Portland Trailblazers, in terms of their shooting, are a keg just waiting to explode. Because they got a lot of shooting on there. And it takes one good shooting night. Maybe two. And then all of a sudden, this is a completely different series. And again, small sample sizes. You can theoretically see back-to-back games in Portland, then the game back in Denver, where we're talking about a 47% shooting clip from between two of those, you know, those two games... And Portland has a 3-2 series lead. So, it's been a fun series, though, man. This has been a really good one. Nikola Jokic has been absolutely fantastic. Facundo Campazzo had a very good game. And, of course, Austin Rivers scoring down the stretch, hitting three-point shots. I don't know if that's going to be happening again. And that's why you need a better showing from the guys within four feet. And we're still waiting to see if guys like P.J. Dozer and Will Barton are going to make an appearance in this series. A day off in between games. Maybe the game back in Denver is a spot that these guys are waiting for. But the fact that the Nuggets have home court yet again, very, very big win. For the Denver Nuggets in this series. So let's take a look at Milwaukee and Miami. Boy, was I wrong about this one. Wrong in the sense that, and I've said this a couple of times. I thought the Bucks were gonna win this series, right? In the write-ups for VCN.com, I picked the Bucks to win in six. And I was wrong because the gap between these two teams is much larger than I anticipated. Much larger. And there seems to be something at play here outside of what we've been seeing on the court and we can get through all the offensive numbers, right? When Jimmy Butler is done and all blah, 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 blah. The sh- the heat struggling to shoot at the end of the day, there was like, it's, it's actually, I thought it was pretty simple, right? I did this with Tim and, uh, was it, was it Tim and Jeff on a, on a nightcap or you know, one of the, whatever spot that I did yesterday, there's a thousand of them, but realistically it's really just as simple as Milwaukee got, again, however you want to quantify it, Milwaukee got better. Drew Holiday is a better option than Eric Bledsoe. You added the shooter like Brent Forbes. Bobby Portis is a solid small ball 5 guy. Like their their floor got raised offensively with the additions in the offseason. They are better, right? The starting 5 is arguably better defensively as well with Drew Holiday on the floor. And the Miami Heat got worse. Jay Crowder is not there anymore. From an offensive standpoint, they are worse. They went from second in terms of three-point shooting as a team to 19th. And down the stretch in the second half, their defense, for some reason, regressed. Guys like Tyler Hero regressed as well. And so while these two teams met in Orlando on a neutral court, very evenly matched, and of course Miami winning that series in five, these two teams got worse. They went in opposite directions. And so now you look at this, and that is compounded by the fact that we now have home court, so the Bucs can take the first two games. And then you still have the matchup issues that are out there. Giannis Antetokounmpo has said, F it. I'm just going to guard Jimmy Butler on a possession-to-possession basis. Butler has not had an answer for Giannis Antetokounmpo in this series whatsoever, except for that one neat little runner that he hit off of the glass to force overtime in Game 1. Jimmy Butler in this series, 15.3 points, 33% shooting from the floor, 24% from three, and he's only drawn about six free throws a game. Oh, and by the way, he's only shooting 65% of the free throw line anyways. Even when he gets there, he hasn't been hitting his shots. And in the last two games, he's only got eight free throw attempts. So the the Bucs have made this adjustment defensively, which is very good, putting Giannis out there on Jimmy Butler. The three-point shooting's not there for Miami whatsoever, and you kind of expected it, right? Like, yes, the first game, it was great. You hit those all those three-point shots, shoots 40% from 3, congratulations. But at the end of the day, you figure that wasn't sustainable for a team at end of the season shooting, or excuse me, 19th in three-point shooting, 36% as a squad, and sure enough, through these three games now after that massive massive game 1, 34.7 from beyond the arc. So all of these things, right? It's all the things I wrote about, all the things we discussed, these are all just kind of playing out through the course of three games now. So, sure, can Miami potentially take game four, you know, that fell into the trap, right? We talked about this all the time in the game, the days leading up. Hey, man, coming back home, first quarter, first half. Nope, Buck snuffed it out. And that was, to me, that was the eye-opener, was the first quarter on Thursday. Was the fact that they came out and again, the offense immediately just bogs down for Miami. The three point shooting isn't there. Miami's getting in the paint, scoring, finding open shooters. The shooting has regressed, obviously, positively for Milwaukee. And here's the thing they had a massive shooting game in game two. Shooting regressed to normal for this team, right? In that game against the Miami Heat yesterday, as we talk, uh, as we you know, give this to you on an early Friday morning, Milwaukee in the game against Miami. 12 of 31 from beyond the arc in non-garbage time, 38.7%. That's right around the clip of this team for the season. So after 16% in game one, which we knew was unsustainable, that this team was going to regress positively, and sure enough, it has, right? They weren't going to shoot at the clip in game two. They're right back to even keel in game three. This has just been a very, very good performance for Milwaukee overall. There's probably some personal attitude in this one as well after the way they lost that series last year to the Miami Heat. So it looks like they're going to wrap this thing up in either four or maybe they fall asleep and, of course, bring it back home for five. But just given anecdotally what you have hear you've heard from this team, seems like a very good shot that this is going to be ending in four over the weekend. Now, as we move forward big picture-wise here, Tim Murray asked me this on the nightcap Thursday night. I do not think any differently from Milwaukee, right? Nothing whatsoever. In terms of the evaluation of them in Brooklyn and how that series would play out, and again, like, you know, like the people who call me a Knicks hater, all that kind of stuff, just because you pick a team in a series doesn't mean you think that it's going to be a blowout, right? Like, I think the Nets are going to win that series. Over the course of a best-of-seven, I think they have the better talent offensively, and that, that will play out to a victory in a series for the Brooklyn Nets, okay? But no, I don't think any differently of Milwaukee after watching them take apart a team— that ended up finishing sixth in terms of seeding. That was 19th in terms of their three-point shooting. That was a middle-tier to mediocre team in terms of their offensive efficiency. So I think this is a really good matchup for Milwaukee. They're winning in a little bit more dominant fashion than I expected, but still expected them to win. But at the end of the day, they draw Brooklyn, which seems very likely, and we'll have a you know in-depth series preview on that one, obviously, in the coming days. I just, no, my opinion hasn't really changed. And I don't mean to sound dismissive about that, I just think you have to take this matchup with everything that you're looking at and realize that, yes, they drew Miami. It's a pretty good matchup for Milwaukee. Clearly, Miami has its issues both on the court and some, I think, seems like off the court. Like the Jimmy Butler rumblings have already begun, which is pretty fascinating. Like, I'm a big Jimmy Butler fan. Uh, but after one season, I don't know, man. It seems like that guy, again, just rumblings, just, you know little reports here and there and the unhappiness with him clearly on the court too. When you watch this team just doesn't have the same body language as it did last year. Not very fun, right? When you're losing games, but regardless, my opinion hasn't really changed at Milwaukee in terms of what they're going to do in the next round against the Brooklyn Nets. Should they draw them? We won't lock it in. None of these series are final yet. So today is Friday. You're listening to this early on a Friday morning. You got three games three series that continue later today don't want to spend a lot of time on this just because by the time you listen to this those games could be over but regardless let's take a look at a couple of the games that we're gonna to see tonight because I mean really you have to start with what's going on with the Los Angeles Clippers dude right because again the s word that I have been preaching this whole time sustainability 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 is what you're seeing through these first whatever games or whatever series that we're discussing and however this team is you know, performing offensively, is what they're doing sustainable. And I have to say that I don't believe what the Dallas Mavericks are doing is sustainable. But again, I will always stress this. While what they're doing might not be sustainable, a best-of-seven series still isn't that big of a sample size. So they could sustain this through the course of this series with the Los Angeles Clippers. Dallas Mavericks for two games. Offensive rating, 129.7 in terms of the three-point shooting, 53.8%. It's absolutely insane, man. The -the above-the-break three-point shooting, 52.6%. They're not taking any corner threes. They've taken six corner threes. These are all above-the-break three-point shots that they're hitting. It is absolutely nuts how good the shooting has been for this club in this series. And like I said, you know, I make the joke, but I still believe this to be true. Guys like Tim Hardaway Jr., man, Tim Hardaway Jr. has been absolutely incredible in this series in terms of what he's been able to do against the uh, Los Angeles Clippers. It seems like every time he gets the ball, that three-point shot is going down. But guys like Tim Hardaway Jr., Tim Hardaway Jr. is shooting 65.3% from beyond the arc in this series. He was 6 of 8 from three-point range against the Clippers in Game 2. He was 5 of 9 from three-point range in game one he has a better shooting percentage this is the part that's driving driving me nuts right he has a better shooting percentage from three in this series than he does from the free throw line if you think that's sustainable holy crap but here's the thing again is there a you know a line of thinking in a universe in which this maintains itself, that the Mavericks shoot 57 54%, and sweep the Los Angeles Clippers because they go on a hot stretch. Hell yeah, there is. It's completely plausible. But just like the thinking in going into game two, where I bet the Los Angeles Clippers, I was on the, I was on the Clippers minus six in that game. Got the best line. close seven. Right? Laid six. Didn't matter. But when you look at this from what the Mavericks have done, From this standpoint, it is clear that their offensive numbers aren't sustainable. So what happens now in Game 3 and in this series going forward? Because because just like many, I do believe that there is going to be some regression here and that I don't want to send off the Clippers into the night. Right? There's a lot of people who want to say that this is over with. I refuse to do so. There is something here where the Clippers can obviously catch Dallas on a poor shooting night, poor shooting would be like 37%, and maintain their own efficiency. Because think about it, right? You know, the Clippers, despite the fact that they're down 2-0 in the series, they actually have the 6th best offensive rating in the NBA postseason at 123.1. Right? So they're still putting up 123.1 points if it's extrapolated over 100 possessions. It's just that the other team in front of them is scoring 129.7. Think about that, having the 6th best offensive rating in the league, and still having, and I should say the postseason of the 20 teams, right, that we have seen in action, and still having a net rating of negative six point seven. Like that seems pretty wild. Now the Clippers have their own faults, right? Tyloo in this series, whether it is game three and going forward, has to figure out what he wants to do from an offensive or defensive standpoint. The willingness to get Zubach out there and every single time that he's out there. Luka Doncic hunting him down, running his guy over, then forcing him to switch on to Doncic, and Doncic doing everything from there. That has to stop. It has to. You can go a little bit more small, right? You could put Marcus Morris out there at the five, go a little bit smaller. Kawhi has done a fine job on Kristaps Porzingis or any of the bigs that are out there. They have the size and the strength to take care of that. It's not like they're true low post bigs, so it's not like you're going to be giving up a lot in terms of within four feet of the basket, I have just been amazed about the defensive game plan for Ty Lue because it just seems inconsistent. Are we doubling? Are we blitzing? Right? Trapping. Like, what's going on? There's really nothing there from that standpoint in terms of consistency. And that has been a problem for the Los Angeles Clippers. And on top of that, the ancillary pieces have to play better. I have not been a fan of Marcus Morris offensively in these games up to this point, right? He has not had a great series. In Game 2, he was a liability on the offensive end of the floor. And then if you look at what happened in Game 1, it was much of the same thing, right? So far in this series, Marcus Morris, 2 of 11 from 3-point range. He was 3 of 9 from the floor in Game 1, 2 of 8 in Game 1, or excuse me, Game 2, 2 of 8 in Game 1. A total of 13 points. You got to get better than that. You got to be better than that. He fouled out in Game 2. Like, that kind of, like, Morris is a very big piece for the Los Angeles Clippers, right? He was supposed to be the key cog in their small ball lineups. That's got to get a lot better. The guard play has been okay from an offensive standpoint. Like, Patrick Beverly is going to be fine. He'll hit some shots every once in a while. Reggie Jackson as well. Rajon Rondo seems to be the cantankerous Rondo, right? But the point guard play is exactly what it is. You can't really do much with the point guard. They all have their ceilings, right, in terms of Reggie Jackson, Patrick Beverly, and Rajon Rondo. But Morris can play better. You have your two wings right in Kawhi Leonard and Paul George. And Paul George was much better. They have to maintain what they did in game two, by the way. The driving to the basket, forcing the refs to make calls, drawing free throws. They were getting to the free throw line early. It was extremely helpful in that regard. They got to keep doing that. But really, this is just all about the Mavericks and their offense and whether or not the shooting is going to cool down, man. The Clippers can totally play better defensively. But at some point, When Kristaps Porzingis is taking a three from the corner, it's hitting the back back iron, bouncing up, dribbling on the back iron because it lands right back there, and then falling into the hoop. And then people immediately tweet out, Clippers got to be better on defense. Like, those kind of shots, it is nuts. It is nuts, some of the shots that were going down for the Los Angeles Clippers. Logo shots consistently for the Mavericks going down. It was insane. You expect some regression, and it seems like, just like Game 2, Game 3 seems like a really good spot, I think, for the Los Angeles Clippers, and the market's already reacted. And, like, this is, too, you look at the the faith in the Los Angeles Clippers. You're getting about 2-1, two to one, 225 on the Los Angeles Clippers to win this series. Again, down 2 nothing without home court, right? Two games in Dallas. You want a little bit more there. But there is a universe, obviously, it's much more realistic for a Clippers team to come back in this series and win it, as opposed to a Suns team with an ailing star. That's nuts, man. All right, let's move on really quickly. Hawks and Knicks, too. Uh, I, I think the Hawks are in a really good spot here on Friday. And overall in this series, Like I think you come away from that series, the two-game set in New York, feeling relatively confident if you're the Atlanta Hawks. And look, I know it's very simplistic analysis, but I thought in Game 2, as McMillan was watching his team get run off the floor, it was incredible that he was not willing to put Trey Young out there And, yes, like, play 40 minutes. It's a playoff game. Derek frickin' Rove is playing 40 minutes a game. Like, we can put Trey Young back out there. So I thought it was a coaching mistake by McMillan for him to willingly just allow his team to fall into a 10-point deficit. Because when you put Trey Young back out there, guess what happened? They immediately went on an 8-0 run. They tied the game up multiple times, but ultimately it just wasn't enough. So there is clearly, like, clearly there's a gap here, I think, with this starting unit that's in favor of Atlanta. In the series up to this point, despite it being 1-1, and one of those games being just a single-deficit final, right? Hawks won by two, and getting outscored and losing by nine points in the second one. Trey Young on the floor in the series, he's got a plus five through two games. And here again, I will keep saying this, I am not a hater of the Knicks. You have to look at what's in front of you. And down the stretch, Trey Young, while they only scored that one point over that stretch in the closing minutes of that game against the Knicks... Trey Young was generating open looks. DeAndre Hunter had back-to-back open threes down the stretch of the fourth quarter that he did not hit. Danilo Gallinari had multiple threes that he did not hit in terms of being open. The Knicks, again, third most wide open looks from beyond the arc in the postseason. Difference is the Hawks have actually made him pay for it this time. 42%, that clip could be higher given what they were getting in Game 2. And in Atlanta... That's going to be something I think the Knicks are going to start to pay for, right? Because again, as we talk about these these role players, which is scary, by the way, for the Clippers, if this is true, the role players playing better at home, right? Going back to Dallas. But the role players generally are more comfortable. Danilo Gallinari has not been good through the first two games from an offensive standpoint. You expect that he plays a little bit better. John Collins in game two was a non-factor dealing with foul trouble. So you think that you're going to get better performance from Collins when they're back in Atlanta. Full capacity crowd. I just think that... When you look at what happened through those first two games, can you trust Derrick? Not even trust Derrick Rose. I think you can. But when your offense is so reliant to generate any sort of consistency in terms of their efficiency, and you need Derrick Rose out there. Think about this. You need Derrick Rose out there for 40 minutes a game. You need Julius Randle to finally wake the hell up in the second half to eke out any sort of offense, and still the Knicks 107.3 in terms of their offensive rating. Right? Like, that's kind of troublesome in that regard. And, and you look, between the two games in non-garbage time, Atlanta 103.1 actually has a worse offensive rating. Their offensive rating in Game 1 was much better. They averaged just over 1.1 points per possession. So back in Atlanta against the Knicks, the Knicks are solid defensively. And they have mucked this series up, and they have done a very good job. Those benches, there, there is a clear gap there. But I just think when you watch the gap between the starters and what happened with these two teams, I think the Hawks are in a pretty good, uh, pretty good setup here. When they go back home here against the New York Knicks, especially for game three, the markets moved off that three and a half, right? You're up to four. I would generally agree with that sentiment and some four and four and a half are popping up. I can get it. But three and a half seem pretty low here. I just think coming back home with this capacity crowd and what you're looking at from the Hawks offensively when these starters are out there, especially maybe a first quarter. Look, this Hawks team has gotten off to a great start in both of these series, right? Or both of these games holding double digit leads at one point in both of them. Wouldn't be surprised if first quarter comes in for the Atlanta Hawks in the game overall that they cover. You know, three and a half and, you know, the market continues to move. We'll see. But the three and a half would be the buy-in for myself. I don't know how much time we spend on Brooklyn and Boston. This is going to be a little bit of a shorter episode. I, I just There's a really big gap between those two teams. I'm sorry if you were listening and wanted a little bit more on that. Now, it does seem, you know, seven and a half on the road for Brooklyn. Not a lot of home court being factored in there, right? Remember, they were seven and a half eight eight and a half in the first two games nine nine and a half in game two but you need a big massive game that's it's a very simplistic analysis but you need a massive game from jason tatum to be able to stay within this series all right all done here early morning edition of the hardwood handicappers podcast dropping on a friday i'll have a couple more episodes too the numbers game duty has thrown me off a little bit here but we'll have a couple more episodes that we'll start to put these out with a little bit more frequency kind of like we did the first week of the postseason like rate review subscribe